Welcome to the Make Your Friends Rich podcast, dedicated to founders and their friends enriching each other and how that love fest can manifest into beautiful things. We're your hosts, Megan Everett and Lance Pin. In the years we've known one another, we've helped each other make money and friends that, that have changed, changed our lives. lives. Remembering always, it's not what you know, but who you know. And how useful you can be to each other that can really change your stations in life. Testing, testing. On today's episode, we have three-time successful startup entrepreneur, John Gosha, founder of Idea Paint, the world's first whiteboard paint, finally light bulb company, and his newest venture, Native Voice, that is making it possible for you to interact with all of your favorite brand voice services without switching platforms. In our conversation, John walks us through some of his experiences creating products the world has never seen before without the technical know-how to produce them himself. So we get into learning what that process was like for John, courting arrays of industry experts to help him bring his visions to life. Spoiler alert, John is a master of persistent and passionate persuasion, so that's how he gets the job done. But how he gained that level of confidence might surprise you, and we'll be getting into that. So without further ado, please enjoy listening along with us as we make friends with John Gosha. Uh, John and I have known each other since uh, for about 20 years. We went to school together at Babson College, where you're not cool unless you have a business plan, and most kids stick to that. John actually uh, created a business that he wound up being very successful with in school, and everyone sort of wanted to be like him, myself included. And he'll tell you a little bit about that first entree. Uh, then he did it again uh, in a completely different industry and exited there. And uh, oh, by the way, he's doing it one more time with something even more fantastic. And I won't spoil the surprises, but uh, three-time champion or two and a half at least, John Ross Gosha. <laughs> that was not an inaccurate uh, introduction, I think. I think that was close enough. <laughs> pretty close, pretty close. Well, thanks, Lance. Thanks, sir. Uh, good to see you, and thanks for having me on. Excellent. So I want to introduce you to Megan, uh, who doesn't know you, but she'll have thoughtful questions, and we can start with the very beginning. Uh, the Make Your Friends Rich podcast is about uh, seeking what it is you lack as a person in others and, and uh, you know, being squirrely and scrappy and making it happen and highlighting that no one really does it alone. Um, so if you could take us through a little bit of your trials and tribulations in any one of your businesses in any order, um, I, I think that would be a good place to start. And we can start with, you know, your networking prowess or, you know, how you solve for tech difficulties that you might not have been able to accomplish on your own and just really seeking, uh, seeking to get things done and how you went about that and, and who helped you. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I think my experience is unique um, in that I've started three companies in three different industries. So the first one, of course, being Idea Paint uh, and, and inventing a, uh, a product that you can paint on your walls and, and turn that wall into a giant whiteboard is very different than the second company, Loose City Lights, uh, where we set out to create a, a light source that was energy efficient, but it had a much better quality of light. And now, of course, uh, in my third company, Native Voice, 
uh, we're in voice technology and software. And so I think I'm a little bit different in that I go into a new industry and need to learn the ropes uh, from the start. Uh, sometimes I'm sometimes I'm envious of the guys who uh, and and you know well, I shouldn't say guys but uh, guys and, and girls but uh, just people that uh, are in an industry for years and you know they they see the opportunity and they know the whole landscape and they can say that's it um, you know I have a lot of blind spots when I go into a new business uh, just because I'm a top down entrepreneur uh, I like to look at what are the big things in our lifetime that will change a lot. Uh, because it's the same amount of risk to start a coffee shop as it is to start Google. And so I try to start big, ambitious ideas. Uh, so that reward is bigger for that same amount of risk. And so I, I usually do kind of a top down, you know, what are the things that are going to change in our lifetime that are going to be really big, but that also means I end up doing different things. And so for me, I, you got to start with networking uh, people say, you know, how did you figure out how to build a light bulb? And, you know, I started the company with the former head of R&D from GE, the former head of R&D from Osram, Sylvania. And they're like, you know, how did you get those guys on board? And you know, to tell you the truth, I, I go through this phase of like six months or a year where I just take anyone to lunch that I can. Um, you know, if you'll have lunch with me, I'll fly across the country, uh, literally. Um, done that and then go to industry events, you know, try to meet people, try to talk to them, you know, what's going on in the industry you know, where do you see this problem? What's your perspective? And just try to learn. And through that, I end up meeting a ton of people like the former head of R&D from GE, uh, who I cold called one day uh, at his house <laughs> and uh, introduced myself. And I said, hey, I, I want to build a light bulb. And I hear you're the guy to teach me how to do it. And he goes, I'm busy, kid. Call me in a month. Of course, I waited my month and, uh, and called him back. Uh, and we ended up being fabulous partners. But um, even in this company, Native Voice, you know, we have uh, the gentleman who was hired by Apple to run Siri. Uh, we have uh, you know, the gentleman who invented the very first voice assistant before Alexa. Um, and that all came through you know, just who knows who and, and networking. So I find that you know, one, you have to have people that help you understand the landscape and what's going on in the industry and you know, if what you're thinking is right or wrong. So uh, I like to tell folks that you, know, you have one mouth and two ears. So let's use your ears, you know, ask a lot of questions and, and listen. Um, but, you know, make sure that you have that network because when you encounter a problem, I'm always the guy in this company, whether we're two people or, you know, 200 people where people say, go ask John, you know, he'll probably know somebody. Um, and that's typically true. Um, so that's where, you know, for me, I've, I've relied on networking and, and, you know, how I, you know, I need that as my, my resource. Um, the last thing I'll say, and then I'll be quiet here, is, uh, yeah, I I typically um, am not the smartest person in the room. Um, so the things that I want to do, I check with a lot of people smarter than me. So I have a list of advisors, probably too many, like 15 of them that I have, you know, bi-monthly or quarterly calls with, and I say, here's the thing I'm thinking about doing. You know, am I crazy? Um, and a lot of people will say, no, that actually, that makes a lot of sense. Or others will be like, yeah, you're crazy. You should think about this because it's going to come kill you. Um, and so just running that by a lot of people, um, you know, I talk about vision and, and what we're up to, and it's not just coming from me. It's, it's something that I rely on a lot of people to kind of beat up and poke holes in before I, I cement it. Um, 
yeah, Megan, let's do the finger thing because I want to make sure that you get inspired by John and I don't want to intrude, but I'm always inspired by John. So I might jump in. I'm already inspired. Um, I told Lance <laughs> this morning, I was like, looking at your LinkedIn and like Lance talking about you, I was like, I feel like that, like, like I'm in like mock entrepreneurship right now. <laughs> talking to John, I was a little intimidated this morning. Um, oh no, don't be. Uh, I'm, I'm just trying, you know? <laughs> so have you had anything that's just like completely flopped or failed or like, do you oh, not yeah. actually, okay. Talk about your biggest. Uh, yeah. And um, by the way, cut in, if you guys, if I get long winded or you want to ask a question as I go, just interrupt me. Um, totally okay with that. Yeah. I, I would say I fail constantly. The, the one thing that I think it's good and bad, but I don't stop. Like I can look back at my first company and we probably should have gone out of business, you know, five times. Um, you know, I look at when, you know, we had run out of money and, you know, I was just out of college and I owed people over $50,000 and I ranked them in order how mad they were at me. Um, and it was, you know, I was hiding my car in the, uh, back bay garage in downtown Boston. So the repo folks couldn't find it. I was five months behind in my rent and uh, trying to uh, avoid my landlord and, and all those things. So, you know, some people say I'm a little bit of a dog on a bone and that I don't give up. And I've come to realize you don't fail until you stop trying, right? Everyone that failed, you had that moment when you're like, this isn't gonna work, I'm giving up. And that's the day the company dies. And so, I've only done this twice or Lance, as you said, two and a half times. And I've been fortunate that those times have been, you know, to different levels of success, but uh, I've only been able to do that because I didn't give up. There was plenty of times and plenty of failures. Um, and frankly, we, we fail every day, but that that's the key, right? You got to fail a thousand times to figure out what doesn't work to find the one thing that does. Um, so yeah, I, I fail a lot, but I tend not to give up. So I don't have to put on my resume. I say a lot, the only reason we've made it is because I didn't give up. So I resonate with that a lot. Um, you know, you can Absolutely. always quit. Like it's the only thing that actually makes a difference, especially in the tech world between like people that are making it and not is the ones that just were like, I'll be broke and sleep on my mom's couch and keep going. Yeah. You know, and you know absolutely. And there's a, a story I like to share. So, uh, at my college graduation, Lance and I's college uh, graduation, uh, the uh, one of my friends, his family business is Perry Ellis, so it's a pretty big uh, clothing company. Yeah. And his mom is uh, CFO of Perry Ellis, and and I was bragging to her at graduation that you know I started this uh, this company called Idea Paint, but I had gotten a, a job at you know on Wall Street. I went and got a job at Goldman Sachs, and. I was supposed to start in six months and I was telling her how it's so perfect because I've got six months to try to start this company. And if it doesn't, I can always go to Wall Street. I've got this job waiting for me. And she goes, John, you're an idiot. And I was like, what? She's like, yeah. She's like, you're giving yourself a reason to fail. And she was absolutely right. She's like, if you have that reason, you're more than likely to take it. And it came down to the day before I was supposed to start uh, at Goldman. I flew down to New York and told my MD that I, I couldn't start the next day. Um, and you know, he asked me, he goes, you know, what are you doing? I said, I'm starting a paint company. And he goes, I assume this company has funding. And I just kind of smiled because, you know, we didn't, um, but you know, it, it wasn't ready. Right. I wasn't ready to really go do 
uh, you know, idea pain until I walked away from that, like option to fail, you know, now you're all in. And so, uh, she was right. I was, I was an idiot and, uh, shouldn't have planned, uh, that backup plan. That makes sense. When I started perform, I had a backup plan too. And once I like told those people no, was when I really started building it. So I totally get it. Um, yeah. do, you still, do you own idea paint or did you end up selling it? Uh, we sold it to a private equity firm in Boston called Oddix. Um, it came part of a, a bigger paint company. Very cool. So you've had an acquisition. Distributed. Yeah, so it's uh, we painted 400,000 organizations. Uh, we're available in 20 countries. Uh, it got really popular in Scandinavia uh, and Japan, um, you know, just because I think uh, culturally they like to draw anime and a lot of things japan and and in scandinavia that nice clean look without borders just having the whole wall being a whiteboard kind of fit the aesthetic design but uh yeah we created the dry race paint category and are the number one brand in it today it's very cool we've used it i used it at an old company and then perform used it in dallas so awesome well thank you for being a customer um and then your second company do you still own that or is it acquired as well so, you know, it has not been acquired. I'm okay. still chairman of the board. Um, we closed our series D a little over two years ago, uh, at which point I wanted to hire a CEO uh, and the board supported me and we did that. And so I became chairman of the board. And so we raised about a hundred million dollars for the company uh, so far, but uh, you know, it's still privately held and we'll uh, continue to grow it and, and hopefully sell it at some point in the future. And where are you with Native, Native Voice right now? Are you guys still in development? Or you just got funding, right? Yeah, so we're just getting started. Uh, we're about a year and a half old and we launched our product in October of last year. So uh, about a year ago. And we're about 33 people, uh, so pretty small. And we just closed our seed round, which ended up being a little bit of a larger seed. Uh, we closed on $14 million in July. Wow. This is really impressive. I think for yeah. anybody who has raised getting 14 million as a seed is insane. Like that doesn't happen. Um, anybody that hasn't, can you talk a little bit about funding? Cause I think getting funding is actually just overcoming the fear of asking for it. Like I know when I first went into meetings with VCs, it was a little bit of like, holy shit, I'm about to go talk to a whole bunch of billionaires and I'm really scared and I don't know these people. Um, but once I got past that, I was like, wait, like I have a profitable company. People should want this. Like it became so much easier to have those conversations. So how do you enter the conversations of getting funding? Yeah, so um, I could probably talk about fundraising for a long time, but you know, number one, I, I give the advice of, you know, make sure you understand that your business is, you know, a, a VC style business. Um, you know, VCs are looking for businesses that can grow to be a billion dollars plus. So they're, they're looking for really big visions and really big markets. And, you know, unfortunately, VCs are, you know, kind of herd animals in that they all move in the same direction uh, to certain industries. And so, you know, right now, you know, there's a handful of industries that are probably the, the hot industries that are gobbling up a lot of the VC funding. And so VCs are looking at this and saying, look, we're making a bet on this industry or on this space. 
And, you know, we want to bet on the best companies in that space. And so understanding if you're in one of those industries of interest uh, is key because that makes your job a lot harder. And then also looking at, are you going after a big enough idea? You know, is this an idea that really can scale, really can become a billion or a multi-billion dollar company? Um, and that's, you know, what they're, they're looking for. Um, as far as the process, uh, I'll give you the brief overview and we can dig into this more if you'd like. But one is, you know, you got to get the story straight. You know, when you walk into the meeting, the person, you know, the partner, hopefully, if you've been able to get to a partner or if it's an associate, you know, they're deciding within the first probably 10 minutes of meeting you, is this something they want to do or not? Um, you know, an associate's deciding, do I want to put my name on the line and introduce you to a partner? Am I going to look good? And of course, the partner's deciding, do we want to put our, our money into this? And so, you know, getting that pitch right, um, you know, in the early stage, like a seed, it's all about team. And so, you know, focusing on, you know, who's that team? Why are you unique to solve this particular problem? And why is this such a big problem that needs to be solved? Um, and so, you know, making sure that story is right. Uh, that's, you know, the second thing I'll mention. The third one is you got to create a little deal heat um, where, you know, if you're the, the most sought after deal, everyone's going to become, you know, come running your way. Uh, there's a bunch of theories on this, but getting all your meetings to move in parallel. So I make my target list. It's all about research. You got to find those right fits. If someone doesn't invest in enterprise software and you're an enterprise software company, it's a waste of your time. It's a waste of theirs. So you got to find VCs who have invested in companies that look like yours um and you know that are in your space you know crunchbase is a great resource you can click on any company and see who invested in them you know find companies that look like yours do that research find the partner you know who did that deal and and target them so it's all about fit and then once you find those fits get all your intros lined up you know you're going to need 50 or 100 targets to be successful and find everyone who knows who you've got to go in with a warm intro you know there's no other way to do it uh cold intros i've learned just don't work and once you have all your intros ready, have them all go at the same time. So tell all your friends and advisors and whoever else, you know, intro me on Thursday and Friday of next week. That way, you know, you have all these meetings at once and you start getting this deal heat because all the VCs talk and they pass around. They say, oh, I'm looking at native voice. Yeah, I'm looking at native voice. Um, and, you know, everyone says, oh, I don't want to miss out. You know, there's a thing I call term sheet hell where you're waiting for a term sheet. And nobody wants to move until there's a term sheet on the table. And so you got to create enough momentum to get that first term sheet to turn. And, you know, we went out to raise three to five million in seed money. Uh, we had over 27 million in offers. And, you know, we closed on um, 10 in new money and four from the past for the total of 14. But um, it was just because we were able to condense all those meetings into kind of the intros at the same time. Really good advice. Um not how I originally did it. And I wish I would have, because that's the way we had to go back and do it after. Okay. I did the, like, talk about, yeah. Let's talk about how you originally did it, John. Me. Oh, John. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. We're interviewing <laughs> John today. It's cool. Uh, John, the idea paint, uh, new category, new products, no comparables. How did you raise funds for that one? Um the wrong way and took too long and too hard. I mean, we ran out of money twice uh, at Idea Paint, and that's not an easy thing to do. Um, you know, the first money came from angels, right? It's people who knew me typically, right? People who trust you, they, 
you know, the idea means less that more about they, they believe in you. So it was one of uh, my Babson professors. It was uh, one of uh, my college roommates, Alex Galperin. Um, and then, um, and a, you didn't uh, have the board of trustees. And the product wasn't like in, in ready to ship condition. Like, well, cause like, you know, you're not a chemist, right? How did, no, how did yeah. you arrange your idea presentation? And like, we can do this if we do X, Y, Z. And then where'd the funding come along the way? Yeah, I mean, I had no idea what I was doing. I still don't know really what I'm doing, but um, the best I figured out was, uh, you know, we the, we created a product that kind of worked first at Idea Paint, whether that's the right way or wrong way. You know, we had something that kind of worked. Um, proof and, of concept. Exactly. Yeah, proof of concept, um, MVP, whatever uh, you might want to call it. And my first meeting was with one of my professors. They walked in with two pieces of paper. One was what we would do. Uh, the second piece of paper was the uh, the financials, and she got her checkbook out and wrote us a check for I think seventy five k, and it was more money I'd ever held in my life at that juncture. Uh, so that was just because she knew me and believed in me, and it didn't really matter what I walked in with. Um, looking back on it, but uh, you know, we we had seed funding to try to improve the product to get it to commercial viability, um, and you know, that's a, a hard line to draw in the sand of when is the product really ready and, you know, you need to go selling. But uh, we got our first VC involved prior to going to market. Um, so, you know, we had the product in a couple of companies as a trial and we were able to get reference letters to say, oh, we love this stuff. We want to buy more of it. Um, so it's kind of pre-launch. We raised our first round of, of venture capital. But I'd say that that VC invested based on the idea, you know, they thought this was, you know, something really, um, uh, you know, something that people would love, something that there was a big market for, they personally really bought into it. And they saw that the product worked. Um, you know, that was at the end of the day, it's my little board that you could draw on and say, look, um, they just got it that that should be in every office across the country. Um, so I raised the first VC funds at that juncture. Beautiful. But, uh, but I think that the thing, I mean, the thing that I did wrong in the past is raise serially. Oh, you know, we need to raise money. And then you go talk to somebody and then that person says no, and you were all excited and you wasted two months. And then you got to go talk to someone else. And you just go through this process and two things happen is you kind of become a stale deal because they know you've been around, you know, out on the market and two, it just takes so long. Um, you know, I, I, my last round at Lucidity took, I didn't do it that way. Uh, the, the way I talked about for native voice and it took nine months for Nate, um, for the, my last round at Native Voice, it took us three months, maybe a little bit less. Um, and so just going kind of, ser you know, serially trying to get one introduction and talk to them as they come um, just, you know, makes it really hard. It, it didn't work. Excellent. Um Let's take it back a step as well. Uh, you you sounded pretty organized, right? And you're also very cavalier in appearance. So I'm wondering exactly like what people have to do. Like what's the bare minimum? Are you using software to help you keep uh, tabs on, on your advisors? For instance, 15 advisors a quarter, like I'm not sure I can do that. I have a few that I lean on up quite a bit, but obviously more would be better. And it's just like, as you used to have, do you have standing calls or like, are you using Notion or like Rome research or is your, your Calendly, like your Bible, like what, 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 what are you doing? 
Yeah, so I'm a bit crazy on organization um, just because, you know, it's, it's all about execution. Um, I don't know what the actual stats are, but it's something like 99% of startups fail. And of those, like 90% is due to lack of execution. I see so many startups that run in circles and don't ever get to their milestones. And so, you know, I look at building a business as building it brick by brick. And so you've got to get to your milestones. You've got to know what the next brick is and, and get that in place. And so, yeah, I'm like insanely organized. Um, so, you know, insanely one, organized. You hide it so well. I, I did not know <laughs> that about you. Awesome. I, know, I, I know. I appear very uh, cavalier, but, um, you know, I, I use, uh, you know, one note um, for every single time I have a meeting, I take notes and there's like a different tab for every single person on the team. I do a weekly meeting um, and we talk about, okay, what has happened over the last week? What kind of help on, you know, and, and take notes on all that, highlight what uh, the actions item, items are and follow up on the next, uh, next meeting. And so I do that with every major leader in the company. I do that with every advisor, um, you know, across the board. We love Jira. I love being in software now. Because Jira is just a machine where, you know, you have your epics, you have your user stories, you can break them down into pieces and, you know, a developer can wake up and pick a piece off the pile and start working on it. You can measure how fast you're moving and start to so project when that's going to finish. So you just got into Jira while you got into software or did you have something before that when you were in, in I guess, light bulb industry? I don't know how you, what the, yeah, what the colloquialism so for that. Yeah, so Jira is something we just uh, just started with with software, but uh, the way I run it is we have our annual goals, and I set the company goals, and then I ask my department leaders to set their annual goals, and we discuss, and we all agree on this is what we're going to accomplish this year, and it's three to five, so it can't be too many, they can't be complex, but the uh, the company goals can be a little bit softer, like you know we're going to be get on as many devices as possible. But then I want my sales team to say, okay, we're going to get on to 100,000 devices by the end of the year. And so, it's, you know, by the end of the year, time limited, 100,000 devices, very measurable. And then what we do is every month we have monthly goals across the entire company. And I do bottom up. So everyone sets their own goals, but, you know, their manager has to agree to them. And we're tracking against those monthly goals. And we do the next three months. And then every month we update the following three months. So it's kind of a rolling three month but focused on the next four weeks. So right now it's the beginning of October. So last week I asked everyone, I said, okay, what are we gonna get done in October? And you know, give me three to five simple things measurable. Like we should all know we can get done in the next four weeks. And we're always keeping an eye on um, you know, what that annual goal is and making sure it's tracking to it. So I do it pretty simply, I guess, in Excel. Um, I'm sure there's better ways to do it. Um, but uh, you know, we just track against our- I'm pretty our sure you goals. can do it in JIRA actually like yeah influence. i know okay, yeah cool you can do it on confluence I mean, i've used the sauna i've used a bunch of other things it's this balance between not being too detail oriented you know i find that employees are happiest when they they have autonomy they know where they're headed um so i don't want to get into the very kind of minutia of what's this little thing you did today versus yesterday but monthly seems to be the right cadence where okay and, and you know let's let's measure in that kind of, um, you know, level of detail. And how many people do you manage on a weekly basis with one-on-ones? Um, I have one-on-ones with, let me see here. Uh, about 10. Okay. 
And then at your uh, uh, previous two companies, what was your max uh, leverage? Uh about the same. I mean, I try to keep it less than 10. I mean, I, I have gone up to 12, but having it be like eight is pretty normal for me. Uh, I find if I'm you know, trying to manage you know, more than that, it gets a little tough, but I, I like to keep the organization really flat. And so at this stage, you know, there's, there's not really such thing as a group manager. Um, I guess we made one exception, but you know, it's myself, department leaders, and then individual contributors. And a lot of those department leaders are the only person in their department. So they are the individual contributor, but you know, going beyond those kind of simple, I guess, two or three levels, you know, at this stage, I, I wouldn't go beyond until we're past product market fit. It's like, once we got the business model to work, things are clicking and I've got money coming out the pipes on the other end, you know, then it's about scale. And, you know, now there's room for a little bit more kind of, um, you know, leadership right now is all hand to hand combat. It's like, you know, how do we get fast iterations? Because if I have too many layers in the organization, I don't hear what's going on. And this is about getting feedback from customers, getting feedback from the market. You know, is this easy to install? Is it adding value? What can we improve? And we got to get these fast iterations because um, this whole game is about figuring it out before you run out of money, right? You're trying to figure out the secret code and there's a thousand different combinations and you got to figure out the secret code before you run out of money. Um, and so you got to get those fast organizations. So I try to stay close to be able to hear everything going on, um, until we get it to crack before we get that, you know, that product market fit to happen. And then you can turn on the gas and start layering in a little bit more kind of, you know, leadership levels and, and things like that. So how did you, how did you move from industry to industry? How did you pick what you were going to do? I don't recall you being like a, a paint fanatic um, before inventing Idea Paint. Uh, there's a really cool little story for the brainstorming session that uh, that you went on to get there, and that's cool. And then, but how do you avoid like thinking you're Picasso and trying to like continue in the paint industry? And then, how did you jump to light bulbs? And are you more about like the obsession of, for value creation and like being productive in your everyday life? Is that enough to drive you, or? did you somehow develop like a specific passion for these products? Yeah, it, it's changed over time. You know, I, I hear this a lot from, from folks around, you know, Oh, how do you think of a business to start? And for me with idea paint, it was like, what are the simple problems I see in front of me? And to your point, it was as simple as we wanted to brainstorm and didn't have enough space on these pieces of paper and we couldn't afford whiteboards. So, uh, you know, I think Andrew Foley, a good friend of mine suggested there's gotta be a paint out there that, uh, you know, you can just paint the walls and write on. Right. So that was just a problem that was like right in front of my face. And we all have those, right. I hear my sister, my mom complain about things every day. It's like, Oh, well maybe we should do that that way. And there, there could be a business there. Right. And so I really started with the problems in my life and the people's lives around me. Um, and that was how I came to my first business. But uh, the second one, I took a different approach and used that same approach in the third one, where I narrowed it down. You know, I, after I left Idea Paint, you know, I woke up that first day and had nothing to do. And all my friends went to work and I was just like at home and bored. And I was like, well, this stinks. Like, what am I going to do? So I went to the Boston Public Library every day um, and sat there and was like, what's going on in the world? And just did research to figure out because I've been thinking like paint 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 for years it was my whole world um and I narrowed it down to five things that I thought would be you know huge in our lifetime and one of them was energy efficiency 
And, you know, I was, you know, looked at this and said, we've got to find a way to be more energy efficient. I found that light bulbs were one of the biggest consumers of energy on this planet. And if we all converted to energy efficient light bulbs, we could save 85% of that energy. So 16% of our world consumption of energy, we could save just by changing a light bulb. I was like, wow, that's huge and pretty important. Um, and so I, I narrowed it down to say, okay, I want to do something in that space and found that energy efficient light bulbs were terrible. Um, at the time, there were these weird blue and they flicker and it was just CFLs, LEDs weren't really out yet. Um, and so that's where I said, okay, if we can, if we're going to make everyone buy an energy efficient light bulb, or if we want them to, you got to make something that people actually like. And so I love consumer technology. So I always come back to the consumer, um, you know, opportunity. I look at myself of, you know, if I'm going to go buy a light bulb, do I want to buy something that's terrible and going to make my house look like a cafeteria and me like a zombie, or do I want something that's going to actually be like this beautiful light and save energy? And I was like, yes, from a consumer standpoint, that makes sense. Okay, start there. And then from a business standpoint, I was like, this is a huge opportunity where one of the biggest industries in our lifetime has to shift from something old to something new. And that something old wasn't very good. So I said, okay, you know, here's billions of dollars of business. Like how often do you get a chance to reinvent the light bulb? You know, it's like, you know, it's like soap going illegal and you got to make a new soap one day for everybody. Like that's huge. Um, and so that I kind of, I talked to, I took that top down approach, um, with the, the lighting, uh, business and then also with native voice just around, you know, what's the big opportunity what's the big shift and how we're doing things. But, uh, I get really passionate about it. I love consumer technology and like, I didn't think I loved paint before I started idea paint. I didn't think I loved light, um, before I started lucidity. Uh, voice I, I liked, but wasn't obsessed with it like I am now, but I just fall in love with these things. And it's not about paint or light bulbs. Like I fall in love with the idea of innovation. Like you, you can write on our walls and unleash creativity. I was like, you know, that's super cool. And light, you know, I, I fell in love with the idea that light, you know, affects the way everything appears and the way we feel and how we sleep at night. Um, I find that really interesting. So yeah, I don't start out with these things as like my life passion but I see it from a consumer perspective. And then I say, okay, well now there's a huge business opportunity there also. Let's, uh, let's go after it. But, um, you know, I, I want to do things that will ultimately, you know, hopefully change the world for the better. Um, I'd say idea paint doesn't fall in that category, but you know, trying to, what are you uh, talking about? Wait, idea paint. <laughs> Don't you know saves, that? Wait, wait, it saves companies tons of money. One. Yeah, I bet you the okay. iPhone yeah. is made on an idea paint whiteboard. <laughs> like, obviously. <laughs> yeah, wait, I do know Disney plans their storyboards on uh, on idea paint before they start uh, animating. But um, changing the lives of children. There you go. There you go. Yeah. There you go. Well, energy efficiency is, uh, you know, maybe a bigger one. And I'm hoping that, you know, the idea of, uh, you know, we're in control of our digital universe and uh, interacting with our computers. You know, through our voice, it may be an even bigger one. But anyway, yeah. So let's talk a little bit more about native voice. And I am sure, like me, as soon as I started working in AI, people had a lot of opinions about it. And people are still a little scared of it. So I've been having conversations about, like, how do you ethically create AI? Um, and I'm sure you're having the same. So talk about like exactly what is native voice, how you're building it ethically, kind of overcoming those conversations. Yeah, so to answer your first question directly, 
you know, I believe that our personal data will be one of the most valuable things we own our most valuable assets in the future. And so I look at the way the internet's been constructed and we have huge tech companies that sucking our data out and selling it. And fast forward that movie 10 or 20 years, you know, if those big tech companies control AI and, you know, own all of our data, I think that's a real problem. And, you know, I think we need to reverse that and turn it on its head where you as the individual own your data, you're in control of it, you're able to get the benefit of it, but also you give with permission the ability to have things customized to you at the edge. And so you all, we all want custom experiences and get the benefits of it. But um, you know, I think that that can happen on the edge where, you know, it's you know, not up in the cloud where someone else is, is seeing it or, or owning it. And so with voice, it's, uh, we have the second bite at the apple here, right? You know, the internet was built um, and the smartphone app era was built, but now voice is just emerging. And so we have a chance to set the rules, if you will, in the voice era, uh, because, you know, we have the voice internet being built and everything is being rebuilt for voice. And so I think there's an opportunity to, to change the, the structure of the industry, change the game, if you will. And so what I found interesting about voice is, one, um, there's been a technology catalyst where voice technology's gotten a lot better. It's not just about setting timers and what's the weather. Uh, we can actually do pretty sophisticated things with it. But that technology is not locked up just behind the big companies anymore. So it's available. And that has caused a market catalyst where now not only has voice become the fastest adopted technology in human history, you know, we've adopted voice faster than the internet, faster than the smartphone, one in three Google searches is now done on voice, believe it or not. But uh, that availability of the technology has now triggered every major brand to want to build a voice service the way they built apps in maybe 2008 or 2009. And so what Spotify and Uber and Starbucks and many others are telling me is that they experimented on Alexa and Google the last couple of years, but now they want to build their own thing. And I have confidence that Uber will build the best voice experience for calling a car and Starbucks for ordering coffee and Spotify for listening to music, et cetera. And so as they build their own custom voice assistant, their own custom voice service, the problem they have is they tell me, John, we don't have anywhere to put it. Uh, we need to get it onto devices. We got to get it onto earbuds and on the smart speakers and in cars and anything with a microphone, uh, um, a speaker and an internet connection. And so the problem we have is our industry lacks a distribution channel where, you know, whether you're walking down the street wearing your earbuds, you know, sitting in your living room in front of your smart speaker or driving in your car, I think you're going to want to be able to say, hey, Google for search, hey, Alexa, you know, send me this product, but also, hey, Spotify, play this playlist. And so we need a software layer, you know, infrastructure across all our devices to allow that seamless experience. And so at Native Voice, we, we built that software. Um, where you get access to any voice service in the cloud you want on any audio device. Very cool. So when you explain um, this, yeah. when you explain this to people who don't understand tech at all or voice, like like forever we were saying it was like the Uber of whatever. So what do you compare it to? Or like our voice AI for sales, we've said is like. Duolingo for sales skills. So what yep. are you comparing this to? So uh, 
people, especially investors, love analogies. Um, the ones that get used on us uh, most often, they compare us to Twilio, they compare us to Stripe. I think the best one is they compare us to Roku. And so Roku enabled your TV to get smart and provide you with access to Netflix and HBO Go, et cetera. And so we're allowing your audio device to get smart and giving you access to all the voice services. Uh, an old school one that I also think is kind of interesting, and none of these are a perfect fit, but a lot of people compare us to, Net, uh, to Netscape. And wow. so you had everything locked up behind AOL, and then you had all these independent websites starting to emerge. And you needed software locally on your device to access all those different websites. And, and so today, the same thing is happening, right? Everything's emerging from Google and Alexa, and all these independent voice services are being built. And now we need software on every audio device to access them. And I, I think it's pretty interesting where if we were Netscape, back to your AI question, you know, what would we do differently? And you know, one, I would fix the password problem, right? If you had credentials that were encrypted locally on your device and you could have one-click login across the internet, like that'd been better. You know, Google and Facebook wouldn't have to have come try to fix that after the fact. Uh, you know, if you had encrypted a payment uh, wallet on your browser, you could have one-click shopping across the whole internet and you wouldn't have your credit card, you know, in 400 different websites just waiting to get hacked. But I think the most interesting one is, you know, if you had a data profile that was local on your device, you owned, you stored, and, you know, you could have everything you consumed off, you know, the web customized to you at the edge. Um, you know, one, that data profile would be more robust because, you know, Google has a snapshot of your life, Amazon has a snapshot of your life, et cetera. But through your browser, they know everything you did online. And so if you own that data, you would have much more robust data set. You would be able to have much better preference information and things could be customized to you at the edge. So I think there was an opportunity where Netscape could have made it so uh, you were in control of your data and your data wasn't being sucked up and sold um, and you could have a better experience. I think if that was the case, you'd probably be using Netscape today because when you pulled up something on Netscape, the result of what you got would be better because you had that data profile that you owned and it could be used to customize things to you at the edge. Um, so we think a lot about you know, being in that market position as the gateway, um, kind of like uh, Roku is and, and Netscape was. Um, you know, what kind of power does that give us, but how do we put ourselves on the side of the consumer and be an ally to that consumer? Interesting. Did, did Roku have that functionality as like a just-in-time uh, content editor, uh, savior of your data, and then selector of appropriate ads, or were they just selling the data? And you're saying you're doing, doing something that's a little bit, a lot, a lot more private. Yeah, so uh, Roku did. So one, the big TV manufacturers said, look, we can't give it up to Google and have um, Android own the TV platform. And so Samsung built their own OS, uh, LG built their own OS, but the smaller companies didn't have the resources to build it. So they all use Roku. So that created the market opportunity for Roku. And Roku does have a, a robust data platform uh, where they're collecting metadata. And that goes into when you go to Netflix, and look at, you know, what's your recommended uh, show, you know, that's not just taking in your Netflix um, information, it also takes into account what you may be watched on some other platforms. Um, so Roku is definitely doing that today. They don't give the user quite the level of ownership and control that, that we want to. Um, you know, we think about this as, 
you know, no one needs to know that you get home on Tuesdays at 4 p.m. Um, but, you know, the idea that you're home at, at 4 p.m., you know, that might indicate that, you know, you have more time on Tuesdays and you might want to have some suggestions on leisure activities that day or whatever it might be. So if that information on, you know, you and when you get home is, is locally owned and stored, no one knows about that. There can be an extrapolation layer on, you know, my preferences is, oh, yeah, on Tuesdays, you know, I'm more likely to want to have some suggestion on leisure activities. And so with permission, I think that users can share that those preferences without having to give up the, um, you know, that really personal information of their data that, you know, could get misused as we've seen in the past. It's very deep. <laughs> I find it very um, interesting. I, 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 I can go one layer deeper if you want. Uh, Inception. I will. Let's why go. Not? Yeah. Why not? So, yeah. What interests me about Naval is I think we're the first, we have an opportunity for the first time in history to pass on knowledge like never before. I, I think it's crazy that, you know, every single person learns how to be a parent all over again. And we've done it billions of times, right? And so when you think about our experience, our knowledge, it's basically the sum of all of our experiences, right? You've had experiences, I've had experiences that's formed this kind of framework of how we make decisions. And now that we're tracking all those experiences, we can actually put that you know, into you know, a computing system to give us insights as to you know, what we would say and, and how we would do something. And so with some of the new voice assistants, they're loading everyone's data. They're taking you know, a professor in Cambridge, for instance, they took all his text messages, all his emails, all of his papers, everything, and loaded into an AI. And now you can talk that at AI, and that AI will respond and give you pretty good answers as if it was that professor. And so the idea that we all have knowledge and we're all now documenting our experiences, I think we have an opportunity for the first time in history to pass knowledge forward unlike we've been able to do ever before. You know, if you write a book or you write a paper that stays around forever, but when someone dies, a lot of their experiences die with them. And so I think we're going into this new age of uh, being able to understand knowledge at a new level and, and carry it forward. And so I wanna make sure that that data that powers that, those insights that makes up that knowledge is, is in the control of the individual, not big giant companies. I think that's really important. I don't know of anybody else doing that right now either. Yeah, I think the world. I mean, we won't mention anyway. them on this show. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think the world's going to go there anyway. Uh, yeah. you know, I think eventually regulation will come in, but uh, yeah, I view that we're uh, we're probably just getting ahead of it. Always a nice place to be. When you speak of the world, there are parts of the world that are more into AI and tracking, et cetera, and you better believe that they're doing their best uh, to have complete functionality. So it's better to develop technology on our end and, and pare it down as you know responsibly as, as possible while still providing all of the, the key benefits. So I commend you and I trust that you will not do evil as the... <laughs> It's your only goal. Uh, you got to uh, to do. I think in the future, even today, you've got to you've got to do good. You got to be on the side of your consumer, yeah, to succeed. Otherwise, you won't be in business. No, I mean, I absolutely want to click these things when they say, "Would you like personalized ads?" But I also don't because I don't want them to have more data on me, and that's that makes no sense. Uh, sure, I mean, like even me, I, I can't decide which is more important to me. 
And here you are making an easy solution for something that is, a, is an actual problem every day. Yeah, we want, we want customization, but we don't want to uh, have the, the lack of knowledge of what's happening to our data. It's so true. I wonder if people see, see the dichotomy there. I'm not sure if everyone's uh, clear headed on that issue. Anyway, um, uh, wrapping up, we're, we're probably over time. We're, we're trying to stick these, uh, these wonderful talks to less than 30 minutes. We're way uh, over time. Way over. Oh, I think we're over All 45, right. which was our outside, our outside <laughs> thing. Oh, and I didn't charge right. this, uh, this over here, but Sorry, um, I'm long, I'm long winded. So you can, uh, ask no, me it, thing. I'll, I'll give you short answers. I think it's <laughs> no, been no, great. No. You're great. I'm going to cut all that, that, that time check in anyway, just so we'll, we'll have some more time added back on like penalty time. It's great. Um, I would say, uh, any, anything, any advice you'd give to a newcomer or a first time entrepreneur, uh, especially uh, from an industrial perspective, because, you know, here you are now thinking about, you know, the VC world and billion dollar opportunities and not everybody's in, the internet of things and not a, the internet of things hasn't like trickled down to every industry yet. And someone could think of a great idea that maybe is time appropriate. And so maybe paring it down a little bit, um, what, what industries or macro factors should people be considering like today that, that might guide their entry into the business world or their development of their current business uh, into something that has the potential to grow substantially in the future. Yeah. So, you know, first thing I'll say is there's so many opportunities out there. If you think something's a good idea and you believe in it, go for it. Um, you know, that that's all that matters. I, you know, I, I've had plenty of people tell me that what I was doing wasn't going to work and they were wrong. Um, so, you know, I don't think that, you know, you need to worry too much about, you know, picking the right place, pick something that you think is a problem that you can solve and that, you know, you're going to have the energy and passion not to give up on. But some of the big things in our lifetime, you know, that I think about is one, you know, we have an aging population. We're going to have, you know, the first time in history where we have, you know, more non-workers than workers. And how do we take care of uh, that population? So that's going to be, you know, I think huge in our lifetime. Um, you know, we have, you know, uh, an interesting um, change, I think, in our lifetime around, you know, um, glo just global warming and, and the change of our environment. So, you know, we're going to need to learn how to shift where we live. We're going to need to learn how to shift where we farm, you know, all those things. I think there's a, a lot of uh, you know, problems that will need to get solved there. Um, and I, I do think that we are living in a more and more global world. Um, so people, you know, everything we see around, you know, cryptocurrencies and these uh, ideas that, you know, rather than having a taxi, you have a computer system that you use to call a car, i.e. Uber, you know, uh, you know, there's all these um, networks that are emerging and those networks are making us an even more global society. So uh, I think as we shift to more of a global world, there's a ton of opportunity, a ton of problems that will need to get solved there, big ones and, and small ones, but those are the three that, uh, I, I see, you know, happening and, and being a big shift in our life. Oh.